Mm-hmm. He didn't give up. He kept going. Give up? <laughs> what does that mean? No way. There's a Japanese saying, fall down seven times, get up eight. Yeah. No way. Hi, everybody. Very excited to share my conversation with my friends Pat Croce and Kelly Croce Sword, my very first father-daughter duo, and two of the most humble, kind, and welcoming human beings. They complimented each other perfectly in this interview. It was so fun listening to them tell stories together. Quick background, Pat is 64 and in my opinion has one of the most remarkable Philadelphia success stories. Part of the reason why Pat's story is so inspirational is because it is a classic rags to riches tale. Pat started out as a physical therapist and then at the age of 30 in 1984, he took out a $40,000 loan and launched his own company called Sports Physical Therapist where he treated professional athletes and also people from all walks of life. He started a phenomenon. His business grew into a chain of 40 centers spanning 11 states. In 1993, he sold it for approximately 40 million. In 1996, he became president of the Philadelphia 76ers. Note that he used persistence and grit to convince the then current owner to sell the team to him. Pat said he called him over 50 times and even showed up at his house a couple of times. Under Pat's ownership, the Sixers went from last place in 1996 to the NBA finals in 2001. Pat's stories from his time as president of the 76ers are incredible. And of course, we touch on his relationship with the famous Allen Iverson. Kelly also has her father's unique entrepreneurial spirit. She was a huge asset to the team that built Pat's $10 million Pirate and Treasure Museum in 2005, which is now located in St. Augustine, Florida. Today, she works at a company called Cherilu, which is so awesome. They work creatively with their customers on furniture purchases, reupholstery projects, and custom furniture. They are based out of Ardmore, Pennsylvania, but have clients all over the country. In the second part of our conversation, we take a deep dive into the benefits of meditation, which has become a huge part of both Pat and Kelly's life. They emphasize how important it is to stay in the present moment, in the now. What I really loved about my conversation with Pat and Kelly was that they incorporated so many valuable life lessons in their stories. We talked about the importance of curiosity, listening, not caring what people think, remaining positive through rejection, stepping outside your comfort zone, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Pat and Kelly as much as I did. So welcome to High Five Success Stories, Pat and Kelly. Hi, Steph. Happy birthday. <laughs> oh, oh thank happy you. birthday. It is my birthday. I'm 31. <laughs> um, but I'm incredibly grateful to be here with you guys today. So thanks for taking the time. And just so the listeners know, obviously, Pat, you're a big name in Philly. But Kelly, his daughter, is phenomenal, too. And she's very good friends with my sister, Patrice. And they went to Notre Dame together, where I also went. So I love featuring people from Notre Dame Academy. I think yes, you're... I mean, my daughter's there now. Oh, she is? I love it, yes. Oh, she's, she's in the middle seventh school? Grade. Okay, great. Yeah, a lot of fun. Um, and you guys are my first father-daughter duo, so nice. we'll see how this goes, but it'll be fun. You're going to stop after us. <laughs> no, I won't. Drop the mic. Um, but anyways, I thought we'd start out from the beginning. So Pat, since I told you a lot of the listeners are from Philadelphia, so I'd love for you to give a little bit of background on where you're from. I know you're from humbling backgrounds and the influence that your parents had on you. Great. I grew up in a row home in North Philadelphia, a couple mm-hmm. blocks from Connie Mack Stadium, Broadly High. And about at the age of first grade, we moved to Lansdowne, okay. or Levittown for two years, then Lansdowne. So I really grew up in Lansdowne, okay. St. Charles Parish, from third grade to leaving away for college. So yes, we were a middle, 
lower middle class. My dad worked all types of jobs when I was growing up, from milkman to factory worker to working as an usher at the old Phillies ballpark, Connemac Stadium. Then he became an insurance underwriter. That's when we moved to Lansdowne. My mom, when all four of us, I have three brothers, got into school, she went and became a nurse, an RN. Okay. And both of them, my mom had the creative side, my father had pure discipline and organization. So the Irish mother, the Italian father, I like to say I'm a volatile mix of Gaelic and garlic. Okay. <laughs> together. And that combustible, combustible, how do you say the word? Combustible? Combustible formulation yeah. is what created <laughs> everything that I do. Okay. So there's a creative side, a curious side on one end. And the other side is a disciplined motivation to follow through with your intention until the action cannot be surrendered. My dad had a lot of influence mm. on me. Uh, he was tough. He was the old school Italian toughness, so tough love. So you didn't do it right, you got beat up. But it was love. It wasn't okay. whatever you would call child harassment or whatever. So, But I followed through with everything that I said I was going to do. So integrity was it big factor with my father. If you said you were going to do it, you do it. And you do it to the best of your ability. Mm. Otherwise, you're going to suffer. Right. And suffering is not medical suffering. It's physical suffering. Yeah. Go pick the belt you're, I'm going to hit you with. Right. So I think that, I think... Uh, and, and understand, he came from nothing. I mean, he mm. was in an orphanage as a kid with his father living around the corner with a mean... Stepmom. Mm. I mean, and he ran away from the orphanage three times. He tried to abscond. I mean, he had a terrible upbringing. Mm. He should have been a murderer. Yeah, and right. he was, when he died and we had his funeral, I can remember these stories would come out and these people would come forward of things that he had done and money he had paid and, mm. you know, things he had given people that nobody ever knew. And he never told anybody right. that he did it either. He wasn't doing it egoically, yeah. he was mm. just doing it because he was a teddy bear. That came off as a lion sometimes. Right. It was like you know. a watermelon. Okay. <laughs> Hard on the outside, squishy on the inside. Yeah. Right. Kelly has a good point. My father was so loving to everyone else, but he didn't want to be embarrassed by us. Mm. The family was tight. I mean, he was tight, but he he just would do anything. I remember, and this probably wasn't even in the book, we were driving. I was a kid. We are driving, and he picks up a hitchhiker. And the hitchhiker says he's from Scandinavia or Holland or somewhere that we don't even know where it was. And he was cold. My dad gave him these fur-lined gloves, probably fake fur, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, they were the only gloves he had. Right. And he gave them to him. And I remember that. I, yeah. But another time, I remember driving on the same Route 1 mm-hmm. bypass. And of course, weaving back and forth and cutting us off at the red light, he got out and pummeled him. <laughs> so it, it was yeah. the yin and yang. Yeah. It was the yin and yang. <laughs> yeah. You know? He would Definitely. do what was right. Yeah. <laughs> what he <laughs> thought was right. Right. Um, and then turning to Kelly, what sort of influence did your dad, Pat, have on oh you? My or have on you today? So much. I would say, though, the one thing that stands out the most was, is it Zig Ziglar? You get everything left you want by helping others get what they want. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of just pervasive and not in a material way. But I just find that in his friendships and now my friendships, it's like, you never burn a bridge. You never, um, you always do the most authentic, truthful thing that you can do at mm. any time. And really for, it's not for your own betterment. It's really for the betterment of everybody. 
And that, that's always just stayed with me my mm-hmm. whole life. Um, my mom and dad had an agreement kind of like when they got married, it was like she would raise the kids and he would, you know, make the money. And, and they did that, both of them, mm-hmm. really, really well. They did their jobs super well. And it's been interesting in the last few years just watching those roles dissipate and, you know, the essence of their being that we always knew and loved were still there. But now it's we're all kind of friends and roommates in this kind of, um, you know, illusion of a world instead of, you know, the parent role and the child role and the right. grandchild role, yeah. which is really fun. Yeah, I love that. Um, I love that too. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. You Stella. didn't? <laughs> Um, so moving forward a little bit, I'd love to start, people love to hear about the entrepreneurial journey. So if we could touch on that a little bit from when you started sports physical therapist in 1984, what I think is cool selfishly is that you were 30, I think when you started that and I'm 31. So Mm -hmm. around the same age. Um, so would love to hear first. I was 30. That's right. 30. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved with physical therapy? Like, why physical therapy? And then what made you take the leap to start your own company? Well, as I said, my mother was an RN, and she, mm-hmm. I was a phys ed major at Westchester, but I only went to Westchester State College at the time. Okay. I only went there because my buddy Joe Masters was going there, and I wanted to play football for Westchester. I was accepted to Drexel for accounting, but I, so I followed Joe and but it was a phys ed major. I didn't really want to be a phys ed teacher. Now, I love physical education. I love fitness. But that's not what I wanted to do. And I was talking to my mom. She said, you should volunteer at the physical therapy department at Fitzgerald Mercy Hospital in Darby, Pennsylvania. And I said, what's physical therapy? She said, well, it's like physical fitness, but for injured people. I said, whoa. So that's exactly what I did. And that turned me on to an entirely different world of healthcare. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to be a doctor. You could still work with a white lab coat yeah. on and treat patients with fitness, mm-hmm. with prescriptions of exercise and hands-on from yeah. massage therapy to mobilization. And that that volunteer work led me to interview and apply to University of Pittsburgh. Okay. First, I interviewed for Temple and I didn't get in. I took the year off and we couldn't afford to go anywhere else. You mm-hmm. had to go to Pennsylvania school. And there was only Temple, Pitt, and Penn. There's no way I was going to get a pen right. nor be able to afford Penn. So I took a year off and I was a roofer and a store detective and all kinds of crazy jobs yeah. just to make money and took to, took the science courses that were required to get into Pitt. I was missing a couple chemistry courses. And so then I got into physical therapy. And at the same time, I didn't just want to be a physical therapist. I saw athletic trainers knew nutrition and they knew a different kind of fitness. They knew athletic taping. So I, now I leave playing football at Westchester and I go to Pitt and I'm not a football player. I'm a trainer, a student okay. trainer in the physical therapy curriculum. And you take some abuse from football players, but I was a karate guy, so they wouldn't give me too much abuse after you smacked yeah. the first one. <laughs> and so there, it said, okay, that's what my father taught me. Yeah. Don't fight, but if you're going to fight, win. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and I volunteered. And so when I graduated, my intention, my vision was to create what you now know as sports medicine. And it was a relatively unheard of term. Temple had a sports medicine mm-hmm. center. But other than that, rarely were there any in the country. This okay. is 77, right. 78. And so I wanted to meld athletic training and physical therapy. That's like sheep herders and cattle farmers 
going to bed with each other. Right. And they hated each other. Yeah, yeah. And that's the time. And so that's what I did. I uh, started, first I worked in a hospital situation mm-hmm. and then I realized that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. And what you're getting, the theme is that one, I was curious, but two, I was never satisfied with what right, I was right. doing. I always yeah. wanted to do more and something different. Okay. And I knew there was a larger, greater world out there than what was existing as it was. Right. And that's really in the first couple jobs I had in physical therapy, they were fine for physical therapy, but it wasn't the aggressive uh, athletic training flavor of physical therapy. You were dealing with diabetic amputations as opposed to blown up anterior cruciate knee ligaments. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I wanted that. I wanted those motivated patients to set, do exactly what I told them to do so they get back on the playing field. And that was really what happened. We created this sports physical therapist okay. in 1984. I start, let's go back to 79. I started a sports medicine center in Haverford Community Hospital. Okay. I talked the administrator into converting two old OR rooms into this concept. He didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Okay. But he followed my lead and it became a phenomenon. Yeah. People weren't going into Philadelphia anymore. They were coming and it was just that the flyers were coming there. It was just a phenomenon. Yeah. And from there, I wanted to grow it bigger. I wasn't satisfied. And yeah. the hospital was just so complacent. I said, so in 84, I said, later. Yeah. And I started my so own. You're on. And there it was uh, some of the people that I started with at that time are still in physical therapy, running big right. physical therapy national companies, international companies. Yeah. But it was a freestanding 1,300 square foot facility. Your first one. My first okay. one. 1,300 square feet. But mm-hmm. to me, it was the world. Yeah. And that one expanded three times. And that was the first of 40. Wow. Of and eventually, they expanded to 10,000 square feet, right? Uh, yeah, Each did. facility. Yes. Okay. And then I, then I shrunk them back down to 5,000. Okay. <laughs> so you go up, you say, okay, that's too much space. And you bring it back down. Yeah. And there's no mistakes, Stephanie. For your listeners, there are no mistakes. Okay. It's like Edison had 10,000 attempts at making the incandescent light bulb. Yeah. He didn't call them failures. They were attempts to learn the right way. Right. So trying is not doing. Doing, going after something, doing it is the only only answer. You don't try something. Try something is in the future. I'm going to try this. No, that's bullshit. Yeah. You're not doing anything. That's an excuse. Do it. If it doesn't work, okay. Yeah. Reevaluate and do it again. Yeah. That's it. I also think that so many people think that it's you're going towards a success point. And that anything that's short of that is a failure or and it's, it's never just one thing. Mm-hmm. It's always more than one thing. He yeah. always had 10 things going at once, Okay, not just the center. He was doing radio shows at six o'clock in the morning. He was doing the Sixers and Flyers games at night. He was making stuff on the side. He had, I mean, a card game that was called physical. That was like, you pulled different <laughs> cards and you did different exercises. Yeah. I mean, we had physical cards stacked to the ceiling <laughs> in the office. Like just crazy shit. But yeah. like, it may not go off. It may work. It's just all, it's all the things. Because right. you learn something from all of them. From and some of the things yeah. he did for no money. And they, but they brought him a lot of notoriety. And some things he did for, you know, it just, it's all the things. Yeah. It's not just one and here's Success. Right. Kelly makes such a great point. The path to success. And I'm going to tell you something, Stephanie, that I didn't realize until most recently. The only path to success is now. Mm -hmm. How you do what you do now creates the wow. Mm -hmm. How you do 
in Zen. How you do anything is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. How? You're a success when you ask a question and listen intently. Mm -hmm. Not ask a question ready for the next question. Right. Right? That's not success. Yeah. That's just doing a role. Anyone who's listening, whatever they do, if they put their entire mind, body, spirit, and soul into it, that is sacred. That is success. No matter, you don't have to be Donald Trump and be the president of a billionaire. That's bullshit. He's not a success. He's a suffering individual. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Um, and speaking of that, I know you had the Ten Commandments mm. at Sports Physical Therapist, which I loved speaking all of them. about religion. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and you talked about listening. Can you talk about that a little bit more and how people can practice being in the present moment and practice active listening? Because um, I loved all of your tips in your book. Listening, Stephanie, is probably the greatest gift mm -hmm. you can give someone. You're listening. Mm -hmm. You're active, intense listening. Not hearing, but truly listening. Being aware, present of what you're asking and then listening to the response with a not thinking mode, with a non-judgmental mode. Mm -hmm. And just listening. I think it was Stephen Covey or Dwayne Dwyer said, most people listen not with the intent to understand, but with the intent to reply. Mm. No, you listen. Yeah. And most of your great replies will come from a state of not knowing. Just be totally open and aware. Ask the question, listen. And that's really how I got the Sixers. Mm -hmm. Talking to Harold Katz over lunch one time, and I'm just sitting there listening to this man who I respected mm. because I was a physical therapist for the team at the time, conditioning coach. And I would never have had the meeting without knowing, speaking of that, three words, relationships determine results. If mm -hmm. I didn't have a relationship with Harold Katz, I never would have got lunch with him. Right. So I did. So back to the timeline, he's saying, complaining about the team, complaining about this, complaining about that. And I had no agenda. I was just listening and finding out, asking him questions on, what do you think I should do? I had just sold my business and retired from physical mm -hmm. therapy. Yeah. And when I heard this low frequency come out of his mouth, it made me just curious. I'm, Whoa, what if I own 10% of the team, Harold? So, and I don't right. even know where it came from. I'm yeah. thinking I'm slapping myself. Like, who the hell said that? <laughs> but that was it. That yeah. was really, and it just became from being curious and listening. And curiosity is a great component of active listening. Mm -hmm. I'm actually reading a book right now by Brian Grazer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he wrote a book all about curiosity. Well, oh, he's uh, the great movie producer, right? producer yeah. Apollo 13, yeah. uh, Beautiful Mind. And so it's interesting. He said everything. He's Opie's partner. Mm -hmm. Opie's partner? Opie. Yeah, oh, Robert Howard. Howard. Yeah. So it's a really good book. So I'd recommend for the listeners well, to yeah, read that. We were, we were mentioning judgment earlier, but. And yeah. The best quote I think I've learned from him, from whoever it was, was that curiosity was the antidote to judgment. To judgment, oh, yeah. yeah. I, love I think that. it's the Dalai Lama. Yeah, well, yeah. that's a good one. Right. <laughs> True. When you think of if you want to judge someone, mm -hmm. if you just shift your consciousness to being curious, why? Instead of that asshole. Okay. You say, why is he acting like an asshole? Try to understand. Where <laughs> yeah. you're totally. From. Just that okay. little why shifts your consciousness from 
a story to the present. Right. Oh. Yeah. Definitely. From judging to wonder. Yeah. So. Don't take it from yeah. Exactly. So Einstein has a quote, curiosity has its own reason for existing. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that quote, curiosity is not just a word. It's an activity. It's a spiritual active state of mind. Mm -hmm. Forget the mind. The mind's not even there. Curiosity transcends the mind. When you're curious about something, you're not thinking. The mind is at bay. Your whole body, your presence is just, huh? It's right. like an aha moment. Yeah. Where in Zen they call it a satori, a non-moment of the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oprah would call it an aha. That's an aha all from curiosity. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And being in the present helps you be curious. No, that doesn't help you. You can only be present when you're curious. When you're curious, yeah. The only curiosity and presence are synonymous. You cannot be curious without being present. Right. You can be present without being curious because you may not just be not talking anyway. Right. But curiosity and presence are just one. It's a synonym. Yeah. Like gratitude, Gratitude, like acceptance, like compassion, like empathy. They're all presence related. All high vibrational frequencies that any fear based like worry and angst and anger and non-forgiveness, they're low frequency. Right. They won't stick to you when you're curious. Yeah. So backing up a little bit, yeah. so so sports, <laughs> so sports physical therapist, you sold that in 1994. In uh, 93, I sold it, okay. but I fulfilled a two-year employment contract. That's right. Okay. For $40 million, did I read? Whatever you read. Okay. I, like, I, never, <laughs> I never committed. Okay. Um, and then... It was more than the 40000 that I borrowed from the bank. Sorry, from the bank in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so that was a great experience and everything, and then... You met with Harold Katz, who we talked about earlier, who was the owner of the 76ers then. And I read somewhere you called him 50 times um, after an initial... At least. At least. Yeah. Okay. So, but he left the door open. He left the door open, Every yeah. time I would call, he would... Like when I first said, um, you know, uh, listen, uh, you won't... When he said no, oh, like when I said, Harold, I followed up after that lunch meeting, mm-hmm. Harold, you wouldn't sell me 10% of the team. So I want to buy the whole team. And he said, well, when I'm going to sell, it's going to be $125 million And, you know, I'm not ready to sell. He never said no. Okay. No. He never said no. And so then I would call again. Harold, hey. I One time I was in the neighborhood of where his mansion is in oh, Fort Lauderdale. I was only there to see him. Yeah. There was no reason for me to be down there. <laughs> As a matter of fact, his dog bit me, and I, then I really? had to stay there yeah. for lunch. <laughs> How many months did you chase him? Oh, I can't tell you exactly. September of 95 to April of 96. Okay. So, so what a little is over six that? months. Yeah, yeah, seven, eight months. So do we... April 9th, April 20th, 1996 is when we did the deal, Comcast, myself, and then mm-hmm. Snyder. Yeah. And But it started in September, and, sl- and no one knew anything. And, but it right. was, I think the real chase was probably the first three to four months. Okay. And then once I got the option, then it took another three to four months to try and close it. Right. But you didn't give up. You kept going. Give up. <laughs> what does that mean? No way. There's a Japanese saying, fall down seven times, get up eight. Yeah. No way. So then you got the Sixers, 
And I read that the first couple of years were sort of difficult because sort of. Certain- <laughs> well, hold on one second. Okay. Right in between that, he does pause once in a while. Then it was few and far between. But, okay. I mean, he always asked for my mom's opinion on things. He always asked for my opinion on things, and he always valued. I still do. Okay. His yeah, wife's and his child's opinions above all. Above all, yeah. As an equal, which okay. was really important for me to learn because it helps me put the onus on my kids and, and trust what they say and mm. where they're coming from and what they <coughs> think and feel. Right. And at the time when Comcast was the partner and I guess it was Brian Roberts and them were saying, you know, would, would you want the president position of the team? Mm. Maybe that's how it happened. I forget. But he no, I came, said I wanted it. He said he wanted it. Mm. And, but he came to us and said, should I do this? Mm. How old were you at the time? I was at Notre Dame. Okay. Actually, I think I was a sophomore if it was, if it was 96. 96. Okay. No, I graduated in 97, so I was a junior. Okay. And I remember saying, yes, I think you should do it because I think you can help a lot more people okay. in that position yeah. than you can as a retired physical therapy Right. Trainer. At 42. <laughs> yeah. You were, <laughs> you were 42? I think you can help a lot more people. And so where he's going to go and where the, the story went as far as it's sucking so badly, even though it sucked in the beginning and the team sucked and everything, it, there were so many people that just still love basketball and still felt like they were touched by something, mm-hmm. which was just really, really important. So then you didn't, you noticed it exponentially, obviously, four years later right. in the finals and all yeah. that, but from the get-go... It was so powerful how many people you could reach from mm. that seat. Right. You know, from that standpoint, anybody would take your call. Yeah. Anybody would come paint walls downtown somewhere where it was, you know, just completely downtrodden. Anybody would go visit a hospital and he could give away tickets to any of these people because nobody right. were buying the tickets. Right, so right. it was he just so fun. 10,000 tickets those first couple of years because we didn't have, what, 3,000 season ticket holders out of 20,000. Yeah. The beauty of Kelly's, what she's mentioned is giving me a tingle, is that director of fan relations was my buddy Joe Masters, who I followed into <laughs> Westchester. Remember okay, that yeah. story? Well, <laughs> Joe becomes our director of fan relations because I know that nothing bothers him. And all he's going to do is get complaints. No mm-hmm. one's going to say, great job, Joe. So, no, they always call it bubblegum under their seat. Yeah. Or, so he was responsible for giving out 50, uh, 50 tickets or 100 tickets or 250 tickets to schools all over. And some of the responses from these kids were, wow, we crossed the bridge. Wow. Forget about going yeah. to the Sixers game. Yeah. So that's what Kelly's talking about. Yeah. My intention, I got to put a flag in the ground and touch. We got to touch all kinds of people of all walks of life. And there were no color boundaries. Yeah. The Liga de Barrio up in North Philly, mm-hmm. right around the corner from where I was born. Right. Where they had rooster fighting. We had created an entire basketball league for the Puerto Rican community. Yeah. Oh, uh, we had the... Uh, Sunny Hill. Sunny Hill leagues. Great. Sunny Hill was my my uh, ambassador. Area, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just... It was wonderful because there was no black or white. There was no... Money, no money, because yeah. those in the nosebleed section, I would go up there. We had bands up there. We right. had make. As a matter of fact, Mark Cuban, who owns the Dallas Mavericks, came and would follow me twice a year when he came a couple years after me. Mm-hmm. 
would follow me to find out how long Phil this stands and how these people up in the nosebleeds are loving it. Yeah. Because they were as special as those who paid front court seats. Right. I who's, love that. They're not, who's different? Yeah. And then you talk a lot about, um, in your book, about listening again, that you listened to the fans those first two years and it paid off. Oh, man. There was some... That first <laughs> year, Stephanie, when we had the fans in the stands... You would call it a focus group, but it was not. It it's was like ninety nine percent Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was really bad because the team stunk. We had, we won about twenty two games that year, which was much better than winning eighteen games the previous year. But we still stunk. Yeah. And the night of this party, the previous five games we lost in a row. The the star player Derek Coleman was well overweight. He looked like Fat Albert in gym shorts. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't. He wasn't playing. It was just. The coach can't coach. The general manager can't manage. They wanted to trade everyone in and keep Al Iverson. They thought they were playing a game of five-card stud or something. Yeah. I don't know. And that was the night we had this meeting. But it was wonderful. They mm-hmm. realized that, you know, and I, I let go of the general manager and the coach at the end of the year mm-hmm. because of lack of dis- – I didn't think that the level of discipline, the level of communication, the level of passion – level of basketball intelligence was there. And mm-hmm. so now here I am, the de facto coach, general manager, president. I know squat about basketball. Mm-hmm. Nothing. <laughs> I learned in business that you hire great people to do their job. You give yeah. them a long leash and you just question them and quiz them and say, what if? What right. about? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, and then I read, obviously, everyone knows about Alan Iverson and Larry Brown. So, and you chase Larry Brown. Just like you did to Harold Katz, right? Yes. A little bit? Yes. Oh, okay. he, was in the, he, was in the, <laughs> he was in the OR suite delivering his daughter at that time. And that's when I sent 60 pounds of flowers. I said, I called uh, the florist and down in uh, Ten Pennies. Good, Kelly. Down in South Philly. I said, Ann, I want you to make this hospital room look like a mafia <laughs> funeral parlor. <laughs> And this is for, for the listeners to know Larry Brown, who was going to be the, the, the coach. head coach. But yeah. at the time, he, he didn't know yeah. Pat Croce from from a roach. There was nothing. <laughs> he knew not All he knew, I was calling him yeah. to see if he'd be interested in the job. And he said, well, you know, I, you know, Boston's interested. He was still in Indiana at the time. Right. But since we were out of the playoffs, I was allowed to look around. I yeah. was talking to Phil Jackson yeah. and Rick Pitino. And then he said, well, by, by the way, I'm in the delivery Sweet. And my wife's going to her baby. I said, oh, really? Really? A boy or girl? And that's what. Okay. Okay. Now I'll call to you. <laughs> and then I had the next two days later, I had a plane waiting for him. Because wow. once, he, yeah. once he's retired, oh, there was six teams wanting him. Yeah. And then when he came in town, I wouldn't let him leave. Ed Snyder and I had him sequestered in a suite at the Bellevue Stratford. And he was going to get up and leave. I'll think of him. No, you're not, you're not thinking about anything. Yeah. You're signing this. You're shaking hands. No. Right. <laughs> no, right. no, no. You're not going anywhere. Because yeah. I knew we needed we needed experience. Right. We needed a stone cold winner. Yeah. High maintenance. Oh, that's a different subject. But nevertheless, I was used to high maintenance. Yeah. In physical therapy, there's doctors who are high maintenance. Mm-hmm. Who, but you re- depend on their referral. So, hey, listen, I used to say, I got a, that's not tan. That's from kissing butt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then obviously, Alan Iverson, speaking of high maintenance, was a little high maintenance. He was, um, but he was not. As much as people think, you mm-hmm. know, there's Larry Brown and the other. There, he was a star. He was a superstar, mm-hmm. and he was brought up in a way where he didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that his mother was fourteen, fifteen when she had him, his father was in prison, or he was again another watermelon. 
Mm-hmm. Just squishy on the inside, hard on the outside with the yeah. tattoo and cornrows. But no, he didn't have cornrows, and he had one tattoo when I first wow. selected him. Yeah. So that, we, Alan was just, you just had to have the energy. Luckily, God granted me with a high level of energy mm-hmm. to be able to continue with him for five years to keep saying, when he do something bad, like miss a practice, I was the one that suspended him. Mm-hmm. But after I left, you see, they didn't do that. And then right. he's just to his own ilk. He'll return back to what he knows is comfortable. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, his greatest strength and his greatest weakness was always holding true to where he came from. Right. And his, I mean, his style was pioneering at the time. Mm-hmm. Nobody wore cornrows and, and you know, oh, warm-up right, yeah. suits and trucker hats and Nobody wore that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they have a timber, Timberlands for each day of the week. But yeah. I mean, his stuff, I mean, it was pressed. I mean, this was the, the nicest clothes. I mean, they were really expensive, really mm-hmm. nice clothes, which nowadays seems so commonplace. That seems like like every every player of every kind of team, you know, dresses as ostentatious and cool as they want to. Yeah. But at the time, it was like, everybody's in suits and boring and whatever. And he right. just went all out. And all it was out. fun. That's why everybody loved him. Yeah. He's like, it, he looked like a, a movie star, not right. you know, not just a basketball player. And he was a kid. He was a fun loving kid. He put on a show. He everybody he was just 19. loved him. He was he, he was, was nineteen. Like a feisty, nineteen. Wow. Yeah, he was He's a kid. Yeah, that like naughty edge where you just were like, yeah, you wanted to cheer for him. You know, you just had little frame, like just you, you, you just scrapper. You just yeah. wanted to to love him. Yeah. And Stephanie, let me tell you something about Alan Iverson. Mm-hmm. He never ever said a bad word about anyone. Wow, I love that. Never. Yeah. He would throw, you know, people said he hogged the ball. He was a gunner. Yeah. He'd throw you the ball. If you missed a shot, he might get it to you again. You miss another shot, you're not getting the ball again. Right. Because he knows he can score. Mm-hmm. He knows he can score. Right. But like any leader, you share. Mm-hmm. You Like when you're building up a team, you know that you can do everything better than everyone else because it's your vision as an entrepreneur. Right. But you got to delegate and you got to reevaluate and give a little more. And that's the hardest thing, especially for someone like Alan, when you're only judged on your last win. Right. And exactly. so that was, so. but he never at any point in his five years with me mm-hmm. said a bad word about anyone. Yeah. He might have had some wars with. Larry Brown behind the scenes, mm-hmm. maybe with some of the other players, like Jerry Stackhouse mm-hmm. the first year, because yeah. Jerry was the star when Alan came in and Alan became the star. Right. But it was never, ever anything. No, I'm telling you, nothing public. Wow. So that practice, yeah. practice you talk, that was a year after I was gone. Okay. That was not the Alan Iverson I know. So you that yeah. wasn't during my tenure. Okay. I would have got a cane and yanked him by the neck. You, uh, he wouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so one thing I want to touch on too is your 10 commandments. So I tried to memorize them before I came in today. Okay. What's number 10? Um, which is the best. Uh, and really just the last word. Yeah. <laughs> um, do it now. Yes! <laughs> Good job. I was going to say he's narrowed down his commandments to the last word. No, I know. Now. Now. That's it. That's it. Now. <laughs> yeah. Ask him what time it is. Now or. <laughs> Chinese says now. Wow. That's my watch. Yeah. I love that. So listeners, so they know. Yeah. I've got Chinese, two Chinese characters on, on my wrist. left wrist instead of a watch. And yeah. it says now. Now. So if you ask me what time it is, now. Yeah. And it is. It is, yeah. Time is eternity, ever present, now, filtered through the mind. That's all it is. Yeah. There is no time. Yeah. Albert, no... Al- Albert Iverson. Hello. Albert <laughs> Einstein said that time was invented. 
just so everything didn't happen all at once. Okay. Which I love. Like, yeah. I think that it's like, oh my gosh, it's if you beautiful. didn't have time, everything would happen all at once. Right. It's all happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? There's another analogy like that, honey. Same. That, that they use in uh, the Bhagavad Gita or one of those great books. If you look at the, a novel, look at a novel. Okay. The entire book is there now. Right. Open it up to any page and it takes time for the mind to go through it. Yeah. That's your life. That's what synchronicity and coincidence is all about. Everything's now, but we pluck things out. Now, that's way off. Right. Target. That's okay. Like, You're fine. Yeah. yeah. But I always believed in doing it now. Yeah. I, I was never one to... Wait. Yes. Or accept procrastination. Yeah. To me, that was a mortal sin. Right. Speaking of Ten Commandments, that to me, to procrastinate... Was I just well, that's assuming you have another day, right? I mean, mm-hmm. to the point of the te- untethered soul that we yeah. mentioned, but that we're going to talk about, but is that you're assuming you have another day to do it. Right. You know, and he has never assumed that he's going to have another day. day to do anything. Yeah. He does whatever he can now. Now. Yeah. Um, so about the other commandments, too. Right. So, um, so you said, say hello and goodbye always. So that, can you elaborate on that a little bit, too? Well, just like it. you started your salutation of this podcast mm-hmm. with hello, mm-hmm. Stephanie, with Kelly and Pat Croach, that hello opens up the now. Okay. It opens up the relationship with anyone. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that first name basis or some sort of honorarium, okay. Mr. And Mrs. Doctor, Rabbi, whoever yes, it is. Right. But that's important. Like you can get, when you say to someone, Hello, Stephanie. Or like I was in the car wash. Mm-hmm. And I talk Spanish. I only know El Jefe means the chief to this guy. El Jefe. And he beams. Mm-hmm. He just beams. Yeah. That's when you say hello to someone. But hello is not as hard as goodbye. Mm-hmm. So everyone who left our sports medicine centers, and that's when I created the Ten Commandments of customer service, to say when you leave, let's say you just had a blown out knee. Okay. And you're getting your rehab. Yeah. And you leave and you schedule. And as you're leaving, you hear, bye, Steph. See you, Steph. Bye, yeah. Steph. Go. Everyone's, you can't wait to come back. Yeah. And we really can't say goodbye, but you're willing to come back. And that's another $65. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> but I love really, that. Yeah. people love to hear their name. Okay. It's the sweetest sound to their ears. Mm-hmm. And hellos and goodbyes really just open up. And the goodbye doesn't close it. The goodbye really says goodbye for now. Okay. Can't wait to see you again. Because most people don't say goodbye. Later. Right. They don't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Or like American culture has gotten pretty lazy. Mm-hmm. Whereas you'd be in, we were in Europe and you wouldn't not say hello to every shopkeeper, every restaurant, mm-hmm. whatever, wherever you went into. It's assumed and, and, and mannerly to say yeah. hello and goodbye to that person. And it's a form of respect. Right. And, you know, I think we've gotten away from that a little bit. Definitely. Danny Myers in, uh, what's the plate? Um, uh, what's it called? Oh, he's like. Uh, he's the great ho- hospitality chef in okay. New York. I forget the name of his book. He's like but, Union Square. And, but he's talked about service being a hello, but mm-hmm. hospitality being hello. Where'd you come from? Right. Yeah, just taking a, a one effort further to make that other person feel important. Mm-hmm. And that's really so. And if you did that with all of your clients, with all of your customers, with all of your patients, with all of your season ticket holders, mm-hmm. 
you don't have to worry about renewals. Right. Everyone's coming Everyone's because, and the that. word spreads. And it's not because, that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it to touch their soul, their mm-hmm. heart, just to make them, oh, yeah, just that little be, brief, we talked about oneness. Kelly talked about it earlier, that yeah. little oh, wonder. Yeah. Oh, oh, my name. Right. Oh, he knows my name. Or, oh, I don't even remember my name. Yeah. And to say goodbye with the name, name. like, whoa. Yeah, I love that. And then you think, oh, crap, what's their name? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then we go back to Pat Curti Sr., and we just call everybody handsome or gorgeous. Gorgeous? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, so we don't have to go through all the commandments, but the other one I really love is always be positive. And you talk about one of your books about how Dr. Seuss was rejected, mm. I think, 23 or 24 times. 23 times, very good. Yeah. And, but he kept at it, and now... That made an impact on me. Yeah. So that impact on me is how I followed through with Harold Katz, and that made an impact on others. That mm-hmm. No doesn't mean no. No means not yet. Mm-hmm. I love that. Or no means I didn't ask the right question. Right. So you go back, you reevaluate, and you come back with a different question. Okay. Or a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Or a different experience. No, but we think no means no with an exclamation mark. Never come back again. That's not what no means. Mm-hmm. No means no, not now. No is just now without the W. Right. That's all. Yeah. Put the W on it. Come back now. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Growing up, I learned negotiation by usually how I was punished because I didn't want to lose any, you know, advantages that I had. So mm-hmm. if I, if in my bedroom I didn't shut my drawers or I didn't turn the lights off in the house or I didn't put the alarm on, mm-hmm. I would be punished. Couldn't sleep over my friend's house the next time I wanted to sleep over. Okay. And of course, the next sleepover was like the birthday party of the year. I yeah, your miss. sisters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So I would negotiate how I could get out of and be at this sleepover. Mm-hmm. And I mean, forms of negotiation were like vacuuming. Like I had to va- I just remember I had to vacuum the living room, dining room, and, and, and foyer every day for 30 days, which is not much lint accumulates, but you would know right. if I didn't vacuum because it was that like 1980s, like super tight pile carpet. Right, right, right. The lines. The lines exactly. Yeah, the lines, yeah. So I vacuumed for 30 days straight. And so that it just taught me that like, it's ne- it's not nothing's ever set in stone. And right. that's why sometimes my son will be like, oh, you know, we're not doing this, you know, forever. And I'll get, you know, just like, oh. And I was like, but you never asked if you could, and he'll go, you know, yeah. <laughs> just, no, there's good. never yeah. no. You right. always can figure out something else. Yeah. I love that. You know, you just said something really good. I got to put in my journal. There's never a no. That's really good, honey. I've never heard that. There's never a no. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful. Right there. Listeners, take that. I say that to my kids all the time. (laughs) It doesn't work anyway. (laughs) Um, So, how did you stay positive when you kept, when, you know, the no's keep coming? Like, how do you stay positive to keep going? First, I think I'm blessed with PMA in my DNA and positive mental attitude in my DNA. My mother was a positive person. But I think everyone and anyone can elevate the vibrational frequency to a positive outlook by just knowing, as we're talking about, that no doesn't mean no. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I didn't take no as an insult. I didn't take it as a rejection. I didn't take it as no, not to come back. Because I was a paper boy and that you would do something and they, mm. you know, they'd say, no, I was a paper boy from sixth to eighth grade. So I started at a young age yeah. learning business acumen and no doesn't mean no. Yeah. And so 
If no doesn't mean no, then there's only yes. Right. There's only yes. Yeah. Yes, and you read the untellers. The universe is saying yes to every moment that unfolds. Yes. Right. But we say no. Whoa, stop. Yeah. I don't agree with that. I resist that. I fear this. I fear. No. Yes. Practice yes, yes. with an S that we teach our kids. Okay. No, yes. Look at even when you say yes, it changes your mind. Mm. Right there, the yes changes your entire it's a vibration. All of a sudden you start thinking, oh. And you know what? I was one who read I love biographies. Mm-hmm. And so I would read Ray Kroc and uh, McDonald's. Yeah. And uh, Iacocca of Chrysler. And I still read, you know, Jobs and Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix and doesn't matter. I love I love biographies to see that narrative, that story arc. And where's the jump the shark? Right. Where do they go like, ah, oh, because they've all had setbacks. And where is it that the, the no became a, well, not no now. Right. I love that. And I've also found that the people that expect success and expect, thing, expect mm-hmm. things to work in their favor are correct. Mm-hmm. And the people that expect things to not work in their favor are correct right. also. That's yeah. a life-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. That's really good. I love that too. So, um, yeah, it's just choice. Speaking of being positive, your motorcycle accident, I read all about that too. And I know you were Look there. Oh, wow. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> to listeners, oh, Pat, it should be a scar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, but I read that Kelly played a big role too in your garage in Ocean City when you were recovering oh, yeah. everything. So I don't feel like I did. But <laughs> he I wrote about like you in the book. He was, he was such a silent sufferer, like if he did suffer terribly, which he did, and he never put but he never put any of it on my mm-hmm. eye. Yeah. Ever, 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 never. Right. Um and which just, was actually a big relief at the time because I'm a positive thinker and if I think if I would have seen him like this is not good, Cal. I think I would have been like, oh, shit. Yeah. You know? And I'm pretty sure my mom bore all of the worrying for everybody okay. at that time. Um, I was a freshman in college, so it just, you know, you're complete, you know, out to lunch. Yeah. Right? But um, he he just, he went inward and just, there was, he became his own patient and he just went from zero to 60, you know, as, yeah. as hard and fast as he could. Definitely. No, thanks, Kelly. I don't reflect much on this, but never did I have a doubt that I would not return mm-hmm. to walking on my left leg, running on my left leg, dancing, mm-hmm. kicking, whatever I had to do. So much so that I remember going to orthopedic surgeon and I would say, X-ray it now. Let's just check. He says, Pat, it's only been a month or For three bone months. Growth. Yeah. Bone growth. Yeah, I want wow. to see. He would check the bone growth every three weeks. <laughs> yeah. It takes like... Six months to grow right, like right. a shadow of something. Yeah. And sure enough, his damn x-ray would show this cloud growing yeah. and it was bone. Right. And just so the listeners know too, my mistake, I should have told the story a little bit. You were on a motorcycle going cross country. Yes. You were just starting to. And then you fell The universe off. decided that that was yeah. not what he was supposed <laughs> to do. Okay. Well, yeah. there were six of us going across from, we touched the Atlantic Ocean at Ocean City, New Jersey, and the... Goal was to go to the Pacific Ocean in San Diego and stop at Croce's Restaurant. Okay. <laughs> Jim Croce's uh, Restaurant. His yeah. wife, Ingrid, is a friend of mine. They're no relation, although my dad used to say he was our cousin. Okay. Nevertheless, <laughs> no. Uh, uh, and so we were going about 45 minutes until it starts raining. Raining pretty hard. Okay. And I was uh, the lead biker at the time, and I pulled under an overpass. Off the freeway, under an overpass, the pull over dismount to put on our rain gear 
and I get off as I'm stepping off the bike, T-Bone and me and your every other one is parking behind me. And one guy lost control of the big old fat Harley mm-hmm. and skidded in the water and is skidded right past me. But his highway peg that you rest your feet on right. was sticking out and it cut yeah. my leg right off. And so my foot, when I, I didn't know anything. And I'm sitting back in the rain. I'm in the rain now again. And I'm sitting there. I don't feel anything. I'm I don't know what happened. I see my motorcycle Why down. In the rain? Yeah. yeah well, like, what happened? Yeah. And then I see my boots off. Like, I, what's my boot doing off? I pick it up and I see my foot still in it, just attached to my leg by my Achilles yeah. tendon. And then I thought, oh, oh, this is not good. Not good, yeah. And thank God there was a doc who was one of the bikers okay. that yeah. was there. Okay. So he got a rain spout and put it, turned it. That's when it started hurting, when he straightened out my, yeah. put oh. the foot in the rain spout and tied yeah. it. Put it together. And you were at the Sixers at that point? I was with the Sixers. As a okay. matter of fact, Stephanie, the yin and yang of life, the flow of life, is that a week before, mm-hmm. we had just made the play. We had just, we had made the playoffs in 99. Not only do we make the playoffs, but we make it to the second round and lose to the Indiana Pacers. So I'm walking on water. Yeah. At that time. Right. I could do anything in Philadelphia because... The Sixers have now resurrected, right. and I have part of that play in me, or mm-hmm. because they always knew me as one of them. Yeah. I'm a Philly guy. I'm the only Philly guy, right. and I always left it open that I was just a liaison yeah. with the team. Right. And now, from walking on water to not walking at all. Yeah. So then, so I'm in the ambulance, and uh, I call home. And Diane answers, and I tell her I had a little accident, I broke my leg, and she goes, "Oh, you can just go in the RV with." Joe Masters yeah, and okay, another yeah. guy, my <laughs> roommate in college, and yeah. Westchester, Adrian, Cinco, were in an RV following us in case there was any problems or okay. flat tires. Or, yeah. And so uh, provisions. I said, yeah, yeah, honey, sure. And that was it. And right. Midnight, she sees the press conference that Pat Croce is losing his leg. And there's a <laughs> like everything on Action News and all. Yeah. Like it's gigantic. It's on ABC News and ESPN, you know, Sixers president and Losing his leg in a motorcycle accident. She's like, what? <laughs> yeah. They were kind of like, huh? So how long did it take to recover from that? That happened in April, well, that, you said? That happened in uh, May. Okay. May. And uh, To recover, I was, uh, my intention was to walk without the crutches, the forearm crutches, because they took some of my mm-hmm. shoulder muscle to transplant it. I wanted to walk on January 1st mm-hmm. in what was the millennium without okay. the crutches. I wanted to mm-hmm. walk without crutches. Yeah. And I did. I walked with a cane, but I didn't walk too well, but I didn't walk with crutches anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was going to heal by golly if I had to walk yeah, on so, it yeah. to heal it. And so it took maybe two years. Okay. And then the Sixers made it to the finals in 2001? 2001. So the year, okay. fifth year. That happened fifth the third year. year. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And that was awesome. So you brought the team in 1996. From I, worst to first. From worst to first. And then... With a lot of help. <laughs> the attendance rates went up too, right? Went Exponentially. Up. Sold out. Yeah, you couldn't sold get out. a ticket. That's really cool. You couldn't get a ticket the fourth and fifth year. Yeah. And the coolest part, I mean, I just remember the finals. It became so... And you felt that with mm-hmm. now with the Phillies and with the Eagles. Yeah. Every old lady getting their hair set were talking about it. Right. You know, and Villanova. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't just... You know, basketball fans. It was every everybody. single everybody. person. Yeah, just permeated everybody. Right. Great. That was the high five, right high there. Five, yeah. Everyone in Philadelphia 
felt civic pride. And anyone out there in the United States or in the world, because NBA is a world sport, who felt the David versus Goliath, the Allen Iverson versus Shaq and Kobe, yeah. they felt this kind of specialness that, damn, if Allen from an alley cat can be an MVP in 2001 to yeah. going up against Shaq, yeah. it was really something special. And Philly, who always took a second seat to New York and Washington mm-hmm. for whether it's politics or sports, right. they felt that sense of pride, yeah. civic pride. So as Kelly's right, you did. You could have been a blue-haired old lady and still, that Allen Iverson, I like him. Yeah. It was really, and everyone, we start the flags on the cars and the rally tails. It was a I lot remember, of things yeah. that we started then that had never been happening. Now you see a lot, which is great. Yeah. But it was a really cool flow. That water turned into, and you know that, that gasoline that we planted the first two years, mm-hmm. third year of With just the fans, customer yeah. service and fan, and that was the ignition. It just, the match was thrown down and it just blew up because... We had a great product off the court. Right. In customer service, community service, our community outreach programs. On the court, wasn't so good to start, but slowly but surely. Every year we improved. Yeah. There's a philosophy in Japanese called Kaizen, okay. continuous improvement. Okay. So whatever any of your listeners are doing, mm. you never want to remain the same. Okay. Otherwise, you're just going to be surpassed right well that's not what creation's for either mm-hmm. I mean, creation's constantly creating oh, evolving and, yeah yeah so you did there's we're not here to just be static we're uh, that's going backwards yeah. we're always looking to evolve right i love it um how are we doing on time too because i want to talk a little bit about um what time the, is it uh, now oh, <laughs> I won't look at my that clock. was good yeah. she's good okay high five <laughs> Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about after the Sixers, because Kelly came in then after college with the Pirate Museums oh, down yeah. in Florida. Um, I talked to Patrice a little bit before, so she yeah, was giving me the whole his, background. It was definitely his his idea. I was mm-hmm. working at a PR firm downtown and ready to move on to do something new and different. I didn't know what that was going to be, and I was doing 15-minute interviews with all types of people just kind of picking their brain and seeing yeah. what they do and how they do it. and just I didn't know what was out there. I just wanted to see what was going on. Right. I just remember... We pulled up to like, our house at the shore, and he said, well, I have this idea. I really want to do a pirate museum in Key West. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was a really wild learning experience of working with museum designers and archivists and that had an amazing collection. And then it, he then he became collecting, and then he was collecting on high gear because we were doing it. And the story was just really fun, and all the art around it was really beautiful. And it was just this amazing little gem in Key West. Right. And it didn't have enough children moving through because mm-hmm. Key West is kind of a little bit remote. Right. So, how many years ago five. was it now? Five. Well, it was five years that we had it there, but it lost money all five years, although the people who came through, whether they be Mother, daughter, or archaeologist, mm-hmm. scientists loved it. Yeah. I mean, they, it was quoted as being, I think it was the Boston Globe, the Smithsonian meets Disney. Right. So it was really wonderful, but it was it didn't work there. And so I had the opportunity in St. Augustine to give a talk mm-hmm. at their 450th anniversary, the oldest city in the United States. Right. And I happened to talk to Dana St. Clair, who was the director of Heritage Tourism at the time. He says, Pat. Key West has 3 million visitors. 
we have six million, of which most are families, right. and heritage tourism is our main product. Down in Key West, it's water and alcohol. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the deep sea and it's the bars. Yes, right. And so then I talked to Kelly and Diane and I was, well. We kind of said you're nuts. Yeah. I let him leave there that night with a with an option for a building across from the fort that was built in 1690 there. I just, I, I called Mike, I knocked on Michael's door at 1120 that night. I said, Mike, we're not going home. I just got the phone call. I told the guy, I was 12, by 12 o'clock tonight, I'm not, this is my offer. It's only in for tonight. Yeah. And so he called, finally called back and. I told Michael, Mike, cancel. We're not going on the plane. We're staying. We're going to finish this deal. Or the option. And then I came home and told Diane and Kelly. And you moved the whole thing down there. So the museum went all the way to St. Augustine. And got got reconfigured even cooler and even more beautiful. And with another whole uh, pop exhibit, basically. Right. You know, all movie pirates, all all fantasy pirates. Talk to the... Secretary of State of Florida, and they let us the treasure that they have in the bowels of the Capitol that no one gets to see. Yeah. So we have this treasure on loan, only 80 to 100 pieces, but that's all you need. Yeah. Gold doubloons, silver filigree sword handles, like unbelievable gems. That, right. Because they get 10% of anything excavated in Florida, Florida water. So the Atosha, the 1715 fleet, the 1733 fleet, the yeah. Margarita, all these great that's ships. Be a cool ball, yeah. <laughs> I know, the vault was unbelievable. Right. Four people, four different people had to get me, four different people at one time, each one had a different code to let you in. Wow. It was pretty cool. That's because really cool. Because down there had to be gazillions of dollars of stuff. And I'm going through drawers thinking, oh. Ocean's 11. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if I was back to uh, Lansdowne days, a couple of these things yeah. would have been lost. <laughs> um, so the museum's in St. Augustine, Florida. And then, but. Um, and it's work. And it's worked, yeah. That's Tremendously. great. Tremendously. It's been eight years. Eight years, December. Where, where, what month are we? So, yeah, no, I think it might... I think, I think it was when Louis... Wasn't it six years? Isn't it Louis? No, it's about eight years, honey. It's, oh, that Louis, yeah. maybe it was coming up. Yeah. Because I know I... It's coming up. Maybe yeah, it's you're nine right. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. So, but it's That's been great. tremendous success. And then Mysteries at the Museum, History Channel, Nat Geo... Travel Channel all come through there yeah. because they see it's really it takes you back three hundred years. So the artifacts are real from the seventeenth and eighteenth century, some sixteenth century, but the technology is twenty first century. Yeah. So it's a combination. Really cool. It way cool. But I'll tell you, the museum would not look the way it did or feel the way it did without Kelly. Without Kelly, yeah. Because it and was, was Kelly. Without even the humans that are there too. Because mm-hmm. there are some pirate reenactors down there that mm-hmm. absolutely make such a, an amazing addition to mm-hmm. the museum. And yeah. people just, it, it's, they don't even expect that, that they would have. And it's yeah. a great experience. But I think the point, Stephanie, I was trying to make is that you can have an idea mm-hmm. and be passionate about something, but you have to get the right people. people. Someone yeah. else who's also passionate. So I think passion is a really important word mm-hmm. because passion transcends mm-hmm. just the role. Exactly. I mean, that comes from the soul. Yeah. And then you guys still have restaurants in Key West, right? And so your brother and husband run. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. That's so cool that's down right. in Key West. You lived down there for, there for five, for five years. years. Yes. Yeah. One of her sons so cool. was born there. Yeah. yeah. He's a Very bubba. Cool. <laughs> he still doesn't like to wear shoes or long pants. 
Um, and Kelly, I want to talk about Chairloom a little bit too, because I think that's really oh, cool. cool. Yeah. Well, I was going to also say the creative grandmother. I have two creative grandmothers mm-hmm. that both love fabric, both quilted their whole lives, and I never really thought about that until I wondered why I love this woman, Molly's company, so mm-hmm. much. I had brought like a little chair there to get reupholstered. I needed fabric. I didn't know where to go. And my other friend, Molly Zink, really told me, you haven't heard of Chairloom? And I was like, yeah. no. So I bring my chair there, which is apparently a point by appointment only and still is. Yeah. But I showed up that day and Molly happened sure. to be there. And yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, this place is amazing. And my mom was with me and we were just going through all these fabric swatches and we chose a fabric for that chair. I bought another chair and then I ended up like decorating a whole room of my house. And then I got everybody that I met to like go and get stuff there and pillows and all kinds of stuff. Right. And I just loved her concept because it yeah. was like a one-stop shop for vintage furniture and amazing designer fabrics that you don't see everywhere. These right. boutique ones. And, um, I, I guess it was four years ago now, my son was in my youngest was in five days a week school kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I called her after I, I went back to PR part-time and was mm-hmm. doing that when uh, my third was a baby. We had moved home from Key West. Mm-hmm. Jeff was in consulting. My dad was running the Florida stuff. It's now since completely different, but and we'll talk about that. But at the time I was like, PR is great and I can do it well, but it's not what I like. That doesn't like turn me on. Right. You know? Yeah. What do I creatively want to do? And so right. there's three avenues I was thinking about. One was helping my girlfriend really kick off her yoga business and, and Kayleen Callahan is her name. She's Golden Buddha Yoga and I loved her retreats and her classes and she just has an amazing just eye for and an ear for so much. And I love what she did and I love Notre Dame, our school. I mm-hmm. thought, you know, I want to reinvest in that school somehow right. with either, you know, sweat or money or whatever it is. And I loved Chairloom and I just kind of went at all three in some sort of way to see mm-hmm. what kind of took off. And right. with Chairloom, I, I didn't have as much of an intimate connection with Molly. And I just was like, I'll sweep your floors for a month. And mm-hmm. after that, you know, you don't have to pay me. I'll just come when I come. You know, yeah. you, she didn't offer me. That wasn't the thing. But I just said, I'm going to come and be here when I can. Right. And after a month, you won't be able to live without me. Okay. <laughs> and after a month, she was like, do you want your own client?" And I was, are your own clients now? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and it just took off. So she wasn't looking to hire anybody. Yeah. And I always say this to people now, especially kids and my own kids, my daughter. I said, what do you want to do? Because right. you can go and do it for free. Yeah. For anybody. anybody yeah. We'll accept help. Anybody. Right. will accept free help. And if you're a good enough free help, yeah. they're going to ultimately find a place for you. Definitely, yeah. And so I had my daughter do internships every summer. I mean, we right. call them internships. I mean, it's really she she goes to the store that she loves and mm-hmm. she helps them, you know, paint nails or do hair for their mermaid makeovers or yeah. she works on a kayak or she, you know, works at a yoga boutique or whatever it is because she likes to be around those things. She right. likes to do lettering. She likes, so I said, okay, and she, she'll do her services and find out ways to make money on the side and but, you know, she's only 12. Right. So ultimately, when she's 14 in New Jersey, someone's yeah. gonna, you know, in the summer, someone's going to be like, oh, Paz is a hustler. Like, I'm a hire. Yeah. Pass. That's really good advice. So it was, I mean, do what you love. She right. created her own job. I yeah. Mean, truly created her own job at 39, at yeah. 35, whatever yeah. you were. Yeah, 35. Wow. And I, I love, love that. And I love it. I love it. And she's great at it. Like, I love working with fabrics, and it does feel like, somewhat like heritage to me like yeah. I feel my grandmothers and 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 working with just textiles is so mm-hmm. beautiful and I love creativity and just the process and yeah. collaboration because 
you know, if someone brings in their grandmother's old crappy wingback chair and yeah. you put on some amazing fabric and <clears throat> refinish it, reupholster it, and it's like a million bucks. I mean, right. you know, it's just the transformation never gets old. Yeah. Everybody loves a transformation. Yeah. And it never gets old. It never gets old, yeah. And just so listeners know, where's it located? So, so you our get some new, more, new But clients. our clients are everywhere. Okay. Clients are, uh, you know, a lot of them are in New York and, and L.A. And, and you're on Instagram, too. I just started following you guys. Yeah, Okay, great. It's super fun. Nice. We're doing a big event in Brooklyn if this is going to air before September 30th. So okay. If anyone wants it should, to come yeah. visit us in Brooklyn, okay, cool. email at gmail.com and you can come shop all the fabrics of this with the designers there mm-hmm. at this cool house in yeah. the backyard in Brooklyn. It's going to be really fun. Okay, cool. Um, now, before we go, I want to touch on meditation, all about being now. Um, and like I said, I just started the Headspace app. I'm on day 20. So I do it every morning for 10 minutes and it really has had a positive impact. It makes me slow down, not only first thing in the morning, but throughout the day. If something's happening that's, you know, mm-hmm. stressing me out, I step, take a step back and do my breathing. Um, and I know we talked about Tim Ferriss a little bit, but he's interviewed, you know, close <clears throat> to 400 people and he said that 95% of the people meditate. So, you know, it's the successful people, they do it, which is great. So I'd love to hear how both of you got into meditation and then what you both do for how you practice it? Well, <laughs> yoga was my gateway into mm-hmm. whatever I didn't know what meditation was. But okay. yoga, at its core, at least the asana part, was always designed to kind of tire out the body so mm-hmm. you then could sit. Yeah. And I never really had a strong meditation practice. I did take a transcendental meditation course this summer, which has helped me be much more consistent because I okay. found myself to be kind of restless in meditation. Right. Um, but it does help in not only when you get frustrated or really jacked up about mm-hmm. things, I find that it helps me in the heart of the day, let's say like two thirty, three o'clock when I'm like about to run low and my kids are going to be coming home and I want to be new for them. Like yeah. that to me is like the most important time. So okay. Like 20 minutes then. Then. Okay. Yeah. Got it. And I just moved back to my home that I renovated and I have a meditation room. Mm-hmm. And I just oh, love cool. it. It's and really just cool. Having your own space, no matter where you are. I'm lucky enough right now to have a room. It doesn't matter. You could have a, 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 a cushion. You could have a towel. Right. Whatever. But make it look beautiful. Like, I just always love when people have, kid, little kids have a prayer corner or mm-hmm. their own altar. I mean, those things mean something. Like, yeah. crystals mean something. Like, those pictures mean something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, lighting a candle is a signal. Like, it, you know, call your angels to you and ask for help however that is right and I just think it's just a special special time and it's a special room now because my kids will come in in their own way and there's a reverence and there's like a mm. a sacredness to yeah. being in there which is so um fulfilling right I love that and then Pat how did you get into it <laughs> I never wanted to meditate okay uh, to me meditation was the back in Westchester the hippies girls with smelling patchouli and Mm -hmm. my buddies were trying to hit on them so they'd say they were meditating yeah so it meant nothing to me and i happened to it's january of 2015 14 15 14 january 15 i just turned 60 in november and i happened to see an article Mm -hmm. in a travel magazine by a writer pico Iyer. Mm -hmm. didn't know who he was but this this one article, this one line in the article did something to me. Mm-hmm. And he said, most of our life occurs in our head. 
memory, imagination, speculation, interpretation. Mm. So if you want to change your life, you best begin by changing your mind. And right there, I had one of those aha mm -hmm. satories. I went, can you change your mind? I became curious. Yeah. My curiosity started to be activated. The frequency mm. was elevating. I've changed bodies. As a physical therapist, athletic trainer, I can change a body. Right. But can you change a mind? Mm -hmm. I can change my opinion. But can you change a mind? And then I went on a TED Talk, TED Talks, mm -hmm. and I saw he had a talk on stillness. Now, why that would interest me is still the greatest question in the universe, yeah. stillness. <laughs> but I, I watched, and I thought it was stillness, meaning your body stays still. I didn't know it had anything to do with stilling your mind, stilling okay. your thoughts. No idea. No clue. I didn't even, couldn't even spell meditation. Right. And that led me to Andy Podercombe of Headspace on mindfulness. Now, mm -hmm. mindfulness, I didn't know what that meant. Right. And that led me to a third. I, then I start getting addicted. Look at like, And I start seeing another podcast on happiness by this monk, Matthew Ricard. Well, okay. a year ago, I take Diane to the Himalayas in Bhutan to see Matthew Ricard. Wow. Be with him for three weeks. Yeah. He's the Dalai Lama's interpreter. Brilliant man. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. He's Jesus of reincarnation. Mm -hmm. Well, we all are, but he demonstrates it perfectly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to just trying to sit still for 10 minutes. The first two days, I couldn't do it. Yeah. I couldn't even sit still in Key West in my back porch with my eyes open. I thought it was just, nah. So I, this, I'll just make the story very short. I go down the street to the Green Parrot Bar, which is our bar. Mm -hmm. Everyone who's been there. Key West knows the Green Parrot Bar. And on the back patio, which is attached to the back bar, on the wall is a Green Parrot Bar free little library. And in it are about 50 books that we people loan out. They pick them and take them. And it's way cool. It's funky looking. And I'm standing on the patio talking to John, our partner, who's been there 40 years. Okay. From Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. And up the three steps comes a lady with a satchel of books. And she goes right to the free little library. And she starts taking them out and starts stacking them on the step. I said, what do you got there? She goes, I have books for the library. I said, you should be our librarian. Now, I never leave the fence. Yeah. And John's all excited. The free library was his idea. He runs in and runs out as quick as one of our bartenders refill your drink. And he starts stamping the books with this green parrot stamp. Yeah. I'm hoping she doesn't want her books back. And then she laughs and then she leaves. And I said, John, what kind of book does she bring? And the last book he stamped, he closed it and turned it toward me. And I could see the maroon and yellow robes of the Dalai Lama, the art of happiness. Okay. So give me that book. Yeah. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. And so wow. from there, I journaled from that day to today. Yeah. Whatever I'm reading, whatever I'm thinking, I journal in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it took me through an entire metamorphosis of, and that's all it is. And your mind will go. Yeah. And you just let it go. And then you bring it right back. And you kind of laugh. Don't say, ah, oh, shit. Yeah. I, I had another thought. No, your mind's function is to think. Yeah. That was a big one for me. Once okay. you realize that that's the mind's job, it's not your mind. Right. It's not. If it was your mind, then you would think, I love this, the present moment. Right. You would always say that because you never suffer. But we don't do that. Yeah. We say, whoa, I don't like this. Whoa, I don't want this. Yeah. No. If our, we had control over our mind, we would say, I like this. At every now, you'd say, I like this. Yeah. And you would never suffer. But we don't. We don't control our blood circulation, our digestive tract. You don't control your mind. Your listeners, if they realize they don't control the thoughts that come into their head, yeah. they're just noisy neighbors. 
Let them out the back door. Right. No coffee, no donuts. Get the f- out. Yeah. That's it. I laugh at myself. I'm like that guy <laughs> on Braveheart, the crazy Irishman who's next to uh, Mel Gibson saying, looking up and saying, I don't know about you, but you're... You know, he says yeah, that yeah. in Braveheart. Like, I don't know about you, but he says you're... That's that guy in my head. He says all kinds of crazy shit. Yeah. Like all kinds of crazy... Like, stop. Yeah. Cut. I'm like a movie director. Cut. So you laugh at it a little bit. No, not a little bit. All the time? I laugh at it all the time. Yeah. Throughout the entire day. It's, but I don't suffer. Right. I don't get angry. I don't worry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. So if someone, like for an example, if someone that I said earlier emailed me and disturbed me and I wanted to go back at them and give them a piece of my mind. What is a better thing to do? Well, that's the problem. You want to give them some of your mind, and it's not your mind to right. give. It's just thoughts. So, and I would have been, you know, if someone cut me off, mm-hmm. you know, I deep the horn and they chuck you the finger. You asshole! I like to just bang right into their car five times. Right now, if they cut me off, I beep the horn, they chuck me the finger. I say, ah, so that's how the universe is unfolding for me because okay. you will keep getting that person. Who wants to give you a piece of their mind until you realize ah, that's nothing. Just right. Just let it go. Yeah. You take it in, know where they're coming from, but it's not really them. The world's giving you what you need. Mm-hmm. That's what your listeners realize. The universe only gives you what you need, not mm-hmm. what you want. It doesn't care what you want. Right. It only cares about what you need for what Kelly talked about earlier. Your evolution, mm-hmm. your growth, your awakening, your strength. That's what, so when you can take it on as acceptance, mm. which is really hard, and it's not a state of mind, it's yeah. who you are, to say, oh, I have to accept this. No, that doesn't work. Right. Because as quickly as you say, I accept this, the polarity will say, I don't want this. But if you realize it is, okay. Yeah, and, and I'm, I love being a student mm. to some degree. I probably didn't as much in college, but just in general about things that I like, I like being a student. So the analogy I always give myself is, what are they teaching me? Why are they my teacher right now? Mm. How are they my teacher? Yeah. You know, how is this guy that your teacher? You know, right. what is he teaching you? And really it's usually I'm just looking in a mirror and I'm saying, oh, I'm seeing how he just flew off because he was feeling minimized or not strong in his position. And mm-hmm. I feel like that sometimes. And I like what you, uh, what do they say? Oh, what's my favorite line? Oh, if you spot it, you got it. Okay. Like if something somebody does triggers yeah. you, right. you spot it, uh, you got it. You got it, yeah. And something in you and part of my shadow self that I don't want to see and I right. don't show people. Right. So, you know, he showed me what I didn't want to show others. Yeah. What does that teach me? Right. And know this. This is really, really important, Stephanie, for you and your listeners. How people react is their karma. And karma is only, we can get into a really deep philosophical talk about karma, mm-hmm. but I did a lot of research on it. Okay. It's only one easy thing. It's your conditioned reactive re- behavior responses. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And if you continue to react like that, you're going to continue to get a negative karmic yeah, yeah. cycle. So how people treat you is their karma. How you react is your karma. Mm-hmm. And when you give it space, the antidote, we talked about the antidote earlier, for judgment is curiosity. The antidote for karma, bad karma, reactive mm-hmm. reactivity, is space. 
Okay. Give it space. Just put a little bubble of space in there like you're doing with this guy. So how should I treat? Just think space. Okay. And then what comes up will be right action instead of karmic action. Right. Because otherwise, look at spouses. They fight. They say something. They yeah. I shouldn't have said that because that was me. Right. There was no space in my reactivity. Kelly can tell you. I was just reactive. Reactive. Yeah. Now, right. the greatest gift I've been given over the past four years on the spiritual journey has been space. Space, yeah. You can call it stillness, space, silence. It's all the same thing. It's awareness. It's the light of a shining a light of awareness on something before you react. React, yeah. And any kind of reaction is thinking, doing, acting. Right. But I find the hardest part is even when I know the teacher part, even when I can mm-hmm. sit with it, even when I can send that guy love or whatever. Mm-hmm. You feel that energy and it's like mm-hmm. jacked up in yeah. you. So I find that I have to take that shit sandwich that the person that I ate right. from that person and get it out. Like I have to like sage it. I you have to like sing or dance or do yoga or go on a spinning class or right. go for a walk or go for a run. Like you literally have to cleanse that energy yeah. out of you. Right. Because it, it doesn't you don't want to give it back to them. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. Right. And you don't want to repress it. And you don't want to eat it. Right. Yeah. So you yeah. gotta get it out. Get it out. You know, yeah. That's a somehow, really good some point. way, in a healthy way. Yeah. I think that people just have healthy ways to like get the crap out of them. Right. Not have such a hard time, or have to take it out on this, you know, poor nice commercial real estate. Right. 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 <laughs> um, I just read recently that Lincoln used to write letters, and he never sent them when Ooh, he was angry yeah. at people. So they found like stacks and stacks of letters that He's were never like sent. On fire. <laughs> So that helped him a little bit. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask too, they talk about going outside your comfort zone in the untethered soul and sort of facing your insecurities and self-consciousness um, to, to go beyond yourself. Can you talk about that at all? Because whew, they talk about the concept of the monkey in a cage, how a lot of people want to, they don't want to leave that comfort zone. They want to stay in that cage. And so they stay in there for almost their whole life. And That was you, me. That was yeah. me. I wore a leather jacket. I wore a leather jacket with a zipped up front. Don't fuck with me. Yeah. It was a facade. Right. Now I realize that being vulnerable, take that jacket off, mm-hmm. I'm invincible. Right. But until you take or have the curiosity and courage, this mm-hmm. is another scene. Courage, yeah. There's compassion. There's a, But to have the courage to allow your authentic self to, and that's a, a buzzword, but it's really just your bundle of love and peace that's really who you are it's this leather jacket is just the thoughts that oh i can't let them think of me that way or no what doesn't matter yeah it doesn't matter it doesn't matter and that's really stepping out of your comfort zone that's the hardest part mm-hmm. is realizing what's i think it uh we got to have conversations with God said it. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Mm, yeah. Neil Walsh. Walsh. Yeah. yeah. That life begins at the end of your comfort zone. We're just starting. Right. So not only in turmoil, but in, in your passions. Like I like trying new things that are so far out of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. way above my pay level. And just so I make mistakes. There's no such thing as a mistake. Right. There are no mistakes. Mm-hmm. When If your listeners are hearing me, there are no mistakes. There are no failures. No, it's just life. When the water comes down the river and hits a rock, is that a mistake? No, it just goes around. It was Marcus yeah. Aurelius, the great philosopher king of the second century, said, the obstacle is the way. Mm-hmm. The mistake is the way. Yeah. 
as Kelly was saying, the mistake or the person, that guy who's yelling at you, mm-hmm. is the way. Right. He's the obstacle. It's the way. Yeah. Just big a big O on his head. Big O. Obstacle. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. You're the water, as Bruce Lee would say. Be water, my friend. Yeah. I love that. Um, I think we touched on everything in the book that I wanted to. Anything else that I missed I that you would want to talk about? I my comfort zone, and it's, I'm so at the beginning of unpacking privilege. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've really been actually looking and thinking and reading a lot mm-hmm. about because I think I underestimated how much privilege as a white, you know, and mm-hmm. grew up in a really nice family, nice yeah. home, how much I take for granted. Yeah. And I think a lot of our political landscape is stirring a lot of this up, but I think until we not only just, you know, rise up as women, but we rise everybody up, mm-hmm. like that, that all of us are one and that there's, I think there's more that needs to be done. And I, I don't know exactly how I, I'm so new at it and I just don't know where I need to go yet, but that's where I'm kind yeah. of starting to dig. I love that. And you know, Kelly's talking about everyone is one. Thich Nhat Hanh, I know you've read one mm-hmm. or two of his books. He uses the analogy of uh, each of us humans, 7 billion of us, 8 billion of us on mm-hmm. the planet, are a ripple on the water, a wave, a ripple, mm-hmm. a current. And when you think that's all you are, then you start fearing the other ripples. Oh, look how big that ripple is. Look at the white froth. Listen to the sound of that crash. Right. But until you realize that you are much vaster and deeper, you're the real ocean. Mm. And when the ocean stops for just this moment of now, that ripple, it's the ocean. Right. We're all just the ocean. Yeah. Expressed as different ripples and waves. But until, as Kelly says, people realize that fact, that oneness, sameness that we all are, that when I see the whites of your eyes, I'm seeing the soul of mine. It's all the same. Yeah. And then it realizes that the other shoe falls. Nothing matters. Right. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, yeah. I think, you know, what's wonderful, I don't know if you hear Tom Petty's latest song out is from his grave. They found some archives, two songs, one of them. It doesn't matter. Find yeah. a little soul and it doesn't matter. It's right. a wonderful little soul. Yeah. It's great. That reminds me again to go outside your comfort zone. It doesn't matter. Doesn't, it yeah. doesn't Truly. matter. Yeah. You should put it on your door. Yeah, but people think it matters, so I can't try that. No, right. there is no. Yoda said there's no trying. It's either doing or not doing. Yeah. So you're not doing. Right. I, you don't say, yeah, I say to my friends now what my dad said to me when I was like 12. So it's my daughter's age now. And I remember, but so-and-so was going to say this. And you'd be like, who fucking cares? Yeah. And I'd be like, but then if they do that, and then what? Yeah. And, I, and then we do that, and then what? And he would go, and then what? And right. then what? And then what? And I would say, and then that's it. He goes... So who fucking cares? Yeah. You know, you would say that all the way. So I do that to people now. It's like, yeah. what are you worked up about or freaking right. out about? You know? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And again, it's them. It's on them. Kelly told you. You spotted, you got it. That's them. That's right. their karma. You can just put a big K on their head. Like the scarlet letter of a K. You just yeah. feel sorry for them. Look right. at our president. You can see him. his K's in neon. Yeah. Like, oh my goodness, but there's a reason for it. The universe is unfolding perfectly. And let me just end with this, that the past, Stephanie, Mm -hmm. everything that happened in 31 years to you, Mm -hmm. everything up until this point was perfect. It's for you to be right here, right now, doing your podcast with Kelly and me. That's all. There is no memory. 
Memory's just a thought. It's made up of the same mind as your dream last night. Right. Nothing. Yeah. The perf- The past has served its purpose perfectly. Take the now right. and blow it up. Blow it up. Yeah. I love it. Thanks, guys. You're that Thank was so you. much fun. High five. High five. Yeah. That was good. That was fun. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you guys That's did awesome. You can see why I listen to Kelly. Hi, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to High Five Success Stories. To learn more about the podcast, feel free to follow me on Instagram. My handle is at High Five Success, or on Facebook, you can like High Five Success Stories with Steph Hayden. Or I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at High Five Hayden. And lastly, you can subscribe to the newsletter on my website, www.stephhayden.com. And if you get a second, I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes. Thanks so much.